Hello, Mets fans. Welcome to episode 202 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I am Brian Salvatore, and I'll be your host for this episode. Uh, so as I am recording this, the Mets are in the second wildcard position. They have finished their their season playing teams over 500. This is just the uh, the dregs of the league playing them now for the next bit. So hopefully the Mets can stay in this position. It's a fun time to be a Mets fan because we get to see folks like TJ Rivera step up. We get to see some... Uh, some nice young starting pitching. It's really been a very, very fun second half of the season, and I didn't expect that at all. So I hope you guys are having as much of a nice time with the Mets as I am right now, because Lord knows I thought at this point it would be uh, all Eric Campbell all the time. And even Soup had a nice play last week on Friday night. So, you know, hey, who? Do, what, what do I know? You know, this has been fun, and uh, let's keep up the fun. First up, Chris McShane and I talk about the week in wild card standings, and we answer your emails. If you have any questions for the show in the future, please email us, podcast at com. So take it away, Brian and Chris. Well, Chris, we sit here on Wednesday, September 14th. The Mets are in the second wild card spot. They are down a half game for the Giants from the first spot. They are up half a game on the Cardinals. Uh, despite... Losing two of three from Washington, the Mets are in pretty much the exact same place they were a couple nights ago. They seem, well, well let's, let's also back up for one second, they are no longer playing any teams with a record above 500 for the rest of the season, and they seem poised to, you know, barring some typical Mets bad luck, they seem right in line for a playoff spot. So I've asked you this every week for the last few weeks, but how are you feeling about all things Mets right now? Still feeling good. Surprising, I know. Uh, no, I'm I'm right there with you. <laughs> you know, if you look at the two losses they took, today's was a hard luck loss. I mean, you know, a one nothing loss is never easy, especially when you have the bases loaded in the first inning. But you know, Monday night's loss uh, is completely blamable on Montero and Collins. So it's not like that's a team problem. You know, um, yeah, I feel good. Yeah, I mean, you could not really set things up better. Uh, I know that might be a scary phrase to some Mets fans, but the Cardinals and Giants are about to play each other for four games. The Mets are coming home, uh, and they get to host the the Twins, the Braves, and the Phillies. So you have the worst, the second worst, and one of the other bad teams in Major League Baseball uh, for ten games because they have four against the Phillies. It's just, it's there. It's there for them, you know? And I was talking about this a little earlier today. I think, I don't know if I would say anything less than eight wins in those 10 games is a failure. <laughs> but since asking for things of the team has, you know, sort of been a thing we've talked about the last few weeks, uh, that's what I want. Eight and two. I don't care who they come against because these teams don't matter. <laughs> that's fair. Eight and two homestand, and I am thrilled. Seven and three, I'm content, and less than seven and three, I'm I'm going like, ah, guys, come on, you know this was this should have been easier. Well, you know the good news is that we're not going to have any Montero starts in there, yeah. So that's that helps a little bit. Um, you know, we talked last week about Lugo and Gazelman being just you know pitching 
so much better than we could have ever hoped. And today, Gazelman looked great. You know, he continued the 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 streak of just outperforming what we thought he would do. You know, um, can this be for real for both of them? Oh man, I hope so. I mean, it's. I want to say probably not. I mean, I, I hope like two years from now, everybody's Jacob Degrom. <laughs> Where the you know I I doubted him being as good as he was a month in, and a season in, and even after the second great season, you know, and I'm finally I'm past that. You know, a healthy Jacob Degrom, screw it, he's better than. You know, every pitcher on your team, unless you're the Dodgers or maybe the Giants. Or the Cubs. Ah, forget the Cubs. <laughs> Fair enough. Leave that to Schreiber. Okay, that works. <laughs> um, but objectively, sure, yes, this season. But none of those guys have been as good for as long. Although, uh, how many years has Ariad been good for now? Is it three? It's three, I think, yeah. All right, well, then I guess he's got he's got a case. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that of the two, I'm still leaning towards Gazelman being more for real, but Lugo's doing a lot to prove me wrong on that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same way where I buy Gazelman more, but, uh, in, in this context with this rotation, then that makes Lugo the DeGrom, you know? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. If, if relatively speaking... These are not direct comps. If, relatively speaking, Gazelman looks like the Harvey, uh, you know, and, and Lugo looks like the DeGrom, then, you know, that that would be a fair comparison. Yeah. Well, you know, Chris has made his prediction 8-2. and two. I'd be thrilled with 8-2. and two. I'd even be thrilled with 7-3, and three, but that's just me. Um but let's get into your emails. We have four emails that we've been we, we ignored one last week accidentally, and then we have uh, we have three from this week. So let's just try and plow, plow through these a little bit. Although two of them are very similar. Uh, the first question comes from Mike, and he says, "Fellas, obviously I'm rooting for the Mets to continue this surge, get a wild card, and back into the World Series. But Terry Collins cannot coach this team next year." He talks about the mismanagement of the bullpen and Conforto and Loney, and uh, he singles out Collins saying, for all I know, Jay Bruce is the fastest guy on the team, <laughs> which is a pretty ridiculous thing for a manager to say. But he asks us what we think happens with Collins. Um, there's a follow-up we'll get to in a second. But, all right, Chris, so if the Mets make the playoffs this year, unless he totally bungles the playoffs... Is there any way the Mets don't bring him back next year? I would say no, unless things go really well, they go all the way, and he decides to go out on top. Yeah, uh, which Mike alludes to in his his email. You know, the they win a championship, he retires, and the you know they move on. I I would be very very surprised if anything other than his own decision to retire, uh, and not. Well, whatever you want to believe with Wally, ba- Wally Backman's departure from the organization. Uh, oh, Wally. Yeah. I, yeah. I can't see them. I mean, they, the, nothing guaran- is guaranteed at this point. But say they make the wild card. 
win or lose, go in however deep they go into the playoffs. Like you can still say that the Mets made the playoffs in back-to-back years. Uh, you can point to the injuries and you know just sort of. And there are a ton of them, you, so you can defend him on those grounds. And I'm not necessarily saying that I would. 100%. I'm not a Collins hater by any means, but uh I pretty much am. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know, I know, but uh <laughs> you know, I'm I'm no, I understand what you're saying. I do. Yeah, but th- I'm saying it, in terms of expectation, the team could cite all of that, say that he kept everything together. Uh the team made the playoffs anyway, and you know, he has one year left on his contract. And he's, you know, he's going to get another shot with hopefully a healthier team. Uh, that sort of would set him up for a situation where if they did underperform next year, you know, a month or two in, he could be fired, and that right. you know, that could get awkward. Um, but I would be very surprised if anybody other than Terry Collins decides that Terry Collins is not managing the 2017 Mets. Yeah. Um... Podcast host emeritus Jeff Paternostro pointed out that only he'd only, he'd only be the third manager ever to bring the Mets to the postseason twice. Bobby Valentine and Davey Johnson are the only two managers who ever brought the Mets to the postseason twice. So, you know, it will be very, very hard to dismiss him. I mean, I could see, you know, if maybe if he did something similar to what he did Monday with Montero where in the wild card game, Syndergaard clearly doesn't have it, and he sends him back out there, and everyone knows it's a bad decision, and that costs the Mets the game, maybe, maybe then there's a case for firing him. But I, I can't see it happening. I yeah. think, unfortunately, unless the Mets win the World Series and he backs down, or he just decides, you know what, he's ready to retire regardless, you know, that's the only way I see him not managing the team on opening day next year. But Mike goes on to ask, who is your manager next year, if not Collins, fantasy or reality? So uh, do you have an answer? Uh, well, I'll I'll borrow from the rest of his email again here. I Pedro Lopez from Binghamton, now that it's very clear that Wally Backman is not that guy, uh, I think Lopez has a very reasonable case to, to get the shot and he's certainly well liked within the organization. Now there's nobody ahead of him on the depth chart, so to speak. You don't think uh, Tim Tuffles ahead of him at him ahead of him? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's a, that's a tough call. You know what? When you're, if you're going to pick a guy who's never been a manager before, uh, at the major league level, you know, the, they both have managerial experience in the minors mm-hmm. in terms of Lopez and Tuffle. Um, I don't know, you know, exactly what criteria you use, but yeah, I don't know. I to me, it'd be Lopez, and I, it, you know, I like Tuffle. Some of his decisions as a third base coach this year have been a little, eh. They have, but. Been. Uh, I also think that there is there is such a strong um a strong bloodline of nostalgia for the 86 team that I could see um certain members of the organization pulling for an 86 met 
as a manager if all things are equal. So if those two are in there, I could see Tuffle being the nostalgic choice. Yeah. yeah. Even, even if I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, Mike suggests his fantasy pick would be David Wright as a player manager, which, though fun, I don't know if Wright has any aptitude for that sort of stuff. You know, that's not to say he doesn't. I just don't know. There's been no evidence of that. Um, I it think... Would... It would be a pretty, and I'm I'm not. Uh, I think everybody knows I am holding on to hope for David Wright's career as a player for as long as possible. But it would be a pretty badass way to be like, "Oh, hey, I'm still awesome. I'm just gonna manage this team and like ride. You know, we'll, we'll take yeah. we'll ride to the championship. You know, win a World Series in David Wright's uh, first year as manager. Yeah, that would be a pretty awesome way to go out. Um. I don't know who who my dream manager would be. You know, I think the easy answer for a lot of people is Joe Madden, right? But he's not going anyplace. That's that's just not happening. Yeah, um, and I'd be curious to hear you know Rays fans or Cubs fans and how they perceive him on a day to day basis. Yeah, because that, that's not really trying to like undermine criticism of Collins. But what are the things that Joe Madden does that make you go crazy when right. you watch them 140 times a year. Let's right. Say you know your 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 average diehard fan probably misses a few games along the way. So we'll say we'll say 140 times. You know who I wouldn't be surprised to see join the Mets coaching staff next year. Not in the major, not in the manager capacity. I wouldn't be surprised if you see Michael Conforto. I mean, not Michael Conforto. Excuse me, Michael Kadire. <laughs> Come back because there were there were rumors at the end of last season that he was going to be some sort of spring training instructor with the eye of being a uh, a coach eventually. Yeah, so that wouldn't surprise me, but not as manager. I think um, Pedro Lopez is as safe of a bet as you can make if your bet isn't Tim Tuffle. Um, all right, well that brings us to our second email. This one uh, I don't have a name on. I closed that window already, so sorry, email sender. Uh, which Met do you think will be the most important if they can return for the playoffs? Assuming the Amazing and they win the wildcard game from most important to least, DeGrom, Mats, Ligaris, Duda, Wright. So I, I I had the, the name handy. So it's Johnny. Johnny. Thank you, Johnny. Um, now, are we talking, Chris, about realistic expectation or like um, – you know, best potential situation here. Uh, so David Wright coming back in 2006 capacity would obviously be amazing, but are we talking about what he'd yeah, likely no, I, to I, do? I think within the realm of reality. Okay. So if they could return, would mean, you know, hypothetically, yeah, the guy is healthy and ready to go. So who makes the biggest difference? Yeah. So do, do you want to do you want to take the uh, the shot at this first? Sure. Um, I'll say Degrom first, Duda second, Matt's third, Lagaris fourth, Wright fifth. Okay. I think I'm uh, pretty much the same. Degrom first, certainly. Uh, Duda second, certainly. And then probably Matt's. So that's still the same first three. I guess 
just you know when you compare what who the fill-ins are to who you know who were getting back from injury mm-hmm. hypothetically um a healthy david wright does more for me in a vacuum but i don't know i mean even the outfield sent like if you're looking at the playoffs and we know how things went last year and we got very used to the whole Conforto, Cespedes, Granderson until late in the game, and then Ligaris comes in to play center field. Right. So, yeah. I, I, I can see the argument for all that, but I like David Wright too much. So breaks my heart to not pick right there. I yeah. just think that Ligaris well, as a defensive replacement is worth so much at the end of a game. Right. So, yeah, it's... <sighs> It's a matter of who's there and who's not. So, obviously, with Degrom and Mats, it's Montero and whoever. You know whether you want to go into a playoff series and bump Lugo or Gazelman or or both, right? And like, no offense to either of them on that one, but you know, if I could pick a playoff rotation, those two would be in it. Uh, and then I'm with you with Duda being second because. He's not James Loney. <laughs> uh, boy, is he not James Loney. Yeah. Do you have any hope for Duda coming back? I know we briefly touched on this last week, but do you, at this point, have any hope? I do, but I've been... I mean, we're going into Thursday now, and there hasn't been any update of it since, you know, going into last weekend. It was uh, Lucas Duda is ready to face live pitching. Uh, or, you know, take live VP, not just soft toss. So that sounded good, but there hasn't been any real update since then. Yeah. So I don't know if we get another one on Thursday with the day off. Um, you know, there's not a lot going on. Maybe maybe we hear something, but I know time is relatively short, but I'm still holding out some hope. Uh, and I know on the broadcast at some point, you know, Keith and Gary had talked about it, and I think I think it was Keith who had some apprehension about what Duda would look like having not played in, like, five months. And, man, I take my chances, you know? Like, if, he's, if he gets the reps in and he's healthy, it, it's tough because you don't have anywhere to send a guy on a rehab assignment, but look, screw it. I'll, I'll take my chances. Especially because... I think the bloom is off of Loney so considerably right now, even defensively. I mean, that ball that right. Reyes threw away in the ninth last night, I'm not going to guarantee you Duda gets that ball, but I feel far more confident with him getting that ball. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I mean, Duda gets knocked for defense a little unfairly because of the one throw in the World Series. And I think also just because of the way he looks. Yep. You know, he's a bigger guy. He's certainly a heavier guy than Loney. Um, People see that, and I think, you know, big, slow, lumbering, bad defender at first. But, I mean, he's he's not going to beat anybody around the bases. Although he's probably got a shot against Flores. Uh, But it doesn't mean he's a bad defender. Not at all. All right, that brings us to our question from Ryan. Ryan says, team, number one, 
Do you know how it's possible for a batter to have a higher batting average than on-base percentage? I have seen this occasionally over the years, and TJ Rivera is currently in this boat. That was before his performance last night. Um, do you know how that statistical anomaly works? Oh, yeah, sacrifices. Yeah. So, if a batter has hit 300, but along the way he had a sack fly or two, um, and maybe one sack bunt, and he hasn't drawn a lot of walks to, you know, compensate for it. The sacrifices count against on-base percentage, but they don't count against average. So that that is how that happens. That's a nice, succinct answer. And then question number two. At some point, do we need to start looking at Ray Ramirez and or the team doctors? Management frequently gets the blame for not being open and honest about injuries and sometimes botching them. But it seems like the Mets suffer from more injuries than other teams. Other times, it says here, I presume he means other teams. Uh, I'm a Mets fan, and maybe this is an example of confirmation bias, but the past few years have been insane. I'm also an Eagles fan. Boo. Uh, and though I sour on Chip <laughs> Kelly, I remember that there seemed to be at least, there seemed to be less soft tissue injuries in 2013 when he implemented his sports science regime. Keep up the good work. Um. Maybe it's just because I tend to read a lot of these smarkier uh, Mets fans out there, but I think people have been blaming Ray Ramirez and the team doctors for some time. Oh, yeah. I mean, put a boot on it has been a thing on Amazing Avenue since I remember encountering the site. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the overall answer, Ray Ramirez himself, I don't know. The doctors, no. Yeah, like I really don't think the doctors are misdiagnosing things. Uh, you know, I think there's sort of that a gap between maybe what's said by the team and or what's said by the doctor in the first place to the player, and then what gets you know put out there publicly. Right. Uh, but as a as a, I mean, football teams do this, but hockey teams are, are even more extreme, where like you you get almost no details. So I think what might get lost in translation from the doctor's office to whatever you read or hear is not necessarily or not even likely to be bad medical advice. You know, I mean the Mets team doctors are HSS. Um now I'm not in the medical field, but that is a highly regarded institution with doctors to go along with it. So I don't think, I certainly don't think they are the problem. Um, you know, you you wonder about the effects of strength and conditioning uh, and how much it can, you know, prevent injuries or, or maybe, you know, eventually cause them. Um, I just don't think anybody has it figured out. You know, is Mike Barwis helping guys? The Mets certainly seem to think so. Yeah. Uh, but sitting here, we also don't know that the Barwis, you know, method, I think yes, what it's called. It is. We, we don't know that that's leading to guys getting hurt either. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it, I'm sorry for a big, long, I don't know, but. I mean, it does seem like the Mets have been snake bit with injuries over the last 10 years maybe but i think i think part of that is just confirmation bias i think you know we can point to all the injuries and this year has certainly been 
bad. I think more of a problem for me, and I've brought this up on the podcast before, is I feel like the Mets are too gun-shy in putting people on the disabled list. Right. That, that they play short a lot. And then I, it feels like those injuries wind up getting worse because they're not properly taken care of initially. So I don't think that's a Ray Ramirez problem. I just think that's an organizational philosophy that I tend to disagree with. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of a... Like, that's a larger-scale version of Terry Collins. Am I spoiling a part of the last question here? No, go for it. Um, you know, Terry Collins saying... I was caught up with the pitching change and I didn't run for Flores and I should have. Um, you know, season seems long at times, but also as it's going on, seems short. Or, or it probably seems short if you're working in it, especially. Right. You know, the day-to-day uh, and, and sort of all the variables in between, I, I could see how... A decision that seems obvious to somebody who's outside might be easier to get caught up in if you're inside. Yeah. You know, oh, you know, we got an optimistic report from the doctor on so-and-so and, you know, the players on board and we're going to try. You know, it doesn't sound like he's going to be out that long. Um I guess the frustration sets in when it happens over and over. Yeah. But, you know, that's like ultimately, aside from exams that include, you know, serious tests, whether it's MRIs or, or something else, you know, a lot of a lot of what you're getting is coming out of a player. Like a lot of what a doctor gets is coming out of a player. Right. The doctor asks them if they feel well enough to play tomorrow and they say yes. Right, even even if they do like, uh, just a, like a range of motion kind of thing, you know, the feedback isn't entirely objective without some sort of test. Right. So. So yeah, I, I I get it, and it it is definitely frustrating. I know Mark Craig pointed out when he was on the radio today, uh, in, in Wednesday afternoon's game. Uh, that, you know, the Mets were in the middle of the pack in terms of days lost to the DL. And then, you know, I'm thinking at the time as he's saying it that uh, some fans like yourself would say, well, that's because they never put anybody on the DL. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But even if they had in those instances done that, like it wouldn't be that many more days. It wouldn't make them suddenly the most injured team uh, by that measure. It's just been that the players who have been injured have been really important ones. Yeah. Uh, we've said this before on the podcast, but it's re- worth repeating. If you told, you know, April, Brian and Chris, that the Mets would be in the wild card space right now without Walker, Harvey, Wheeler, Wright, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Ligaris, Duda, DeGrom, Mats. You know, you, you'd, think, you'd think it was crazy, but, you know, they've... They've managed to persevere in spite of the injuries, and I think that's the only reason that people aren't absolutely furious about the Mets medical staff this year, because they are in the position that they're in right now. Whether that anger is mis- misguided or not, you know, that, that's up to you to decide, but I would say that the 
postseason positioning right now is being very kind to the Mets injuries. Or at least yeah. the, root, the root cause of said injuries. All right, our final email is from Liam. Liam starts off by saying that Collins can no longer be trusted. Um, I'm with you there, but I know Chris is Chris is more optimistic in most ways than I am, and especially with Terry Collins. Um, he is also interested as to whether the Mets can sell any pieces from this team to give a boost to their system. While it might seem like selling, I am more asking if there is anyone the Mets can trade that could possibly keep the window of contention open for a longer amount of time. I understand that this is dependent upon the starting pitcher's contracts, but am I grasping at straws here? But I am grasping at straws here. So let's start there. Um, Are there any players that you think the Mets could sell off for uh, some nice pieces this offseason? Can we dream on Jay Bruce? No. (laughs) Maybe the Mets could get a potential second baseman of the future for him. And a and a throw in pitcher from the lower levels of the minors. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but yeah. So it, in the context of going into the off season, whenever that may be, uh, and trying to sell someone who they don't need, they have. And uh, man, let, let's just hope that Cespedes sticks around. Yes. Uh, but they have a lot of corner outfielders. So, you know, if they pick up Bruce's option, then hopefully they would be able to trade him uh, on, on that one-year deal. And I think we, we talked about this a little bit before too, but if he hits another home run and if he gets to 100 RBI, you know, not every team might find that to be enough to – trade for him but i i think he would at least be tradable okay um not in a way that you're going to bring in somebody who's a restocking the farm kind of player uh granderson's probably in the same boat i think his track record over the last over his time with the mets really is better than bruce's track record over his last three seasons agreed so you know, if you're looking at a situation where you have the two of them and it's one of them that you want to trade away, um, Granderson could be in the mix. You know, he, they're, they're both making similar amounts of money. They both have, would have one year left, assuming the option is picked up on Bruce. Um, but those aren't, yeah, they're really not the kind of player to, to fit into that question. You know, I I think Conforto is the only guy who could net you somebody, you know, or a package that you would say, oh, the farm system got a lot better. Well, that, yeah, that's what I was going to say is I feel like the Mets have two kind of players they can trade. They have the Bruce, the Bruce Granderson type players, and then they have the Nimmo, Lugo, Gazelman type players. The guys that have a lot of upside but don't have enough major league experience to be a viable trade chip. So Conforto seems like the only guy. Yeah, and I mean you could probably sell high and read or Familia if you wanted to, but the return is going to be considerably less. Yeah, I mean some of the trades that happened this year with relievers kind of make you think, oh, you know. You know, what, what could we get for those guys? Um, 
I like both of them a lot. I don't want to see them go anywhere. But Agreed. You know, hypothetically, uh, Familia, especially because he has more than one year of control left, um, sure, you know, I think he could probably get you a couple of good prospects. But, you know, you say you did something like that and you move Reed into the ninth inning, which would be fine, but he's only got one year of control left. Um, you know, where do you get the rest of the solid innings from the bullpen for next year? So, yeah. or from, sorry, not for. Um, <laughs> I knew what you meant. It's uh, been a long week. It has, it has been a long week already. Um, yeah, I don't think there's anybody else. I mean, I guess hypothetically you could trade as Dribble Cabrera. He's had a great year. Yeah. But, I, but I think that people are going to be weary because of his age and injury concern and the fact that he's clearly p- playing above his career norms right now. Right. Um, who else is there? Darno. What are you going to get for Darno at this point, though? I I I, I hear you. Um, and I like Darno. I'm I'm a Darno defender. Yeah, as am I. But just in terms of guys who you could trade. Who might get you a return? He's up there, and then you know, sure, the whole starting rotation's on the table, right? In terms of that, you know, if if you really buy into Gazelman, uh, if you work out something with Bartolo that he's going to come back and be the fifth starter again next year, you know, I think this season has sort of been the uh, perfect example of you. There's no such thing as having too many pitchers, right? Or too much pitching, and I'd be very surprised if they did anything like that. But you could trade one of those guys, you know, one one of the top four, uh, replenish the farm, fill in with Gazelman or whoever, and uh, and and kind of just roll with that. But but yeah, that's. I think that's about it. Conforto or one of your favorite pitchers, I guess, is my answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, then he has uh, two more questions, one baseball-related, one not. Let's go with the baseball-related one first. Uh, I wanted to ask, any ideas as to whether there are any articles or things to watch that you find you help that find help you better evaluate players on the field? I understand watching a lot of baseball helps, but I'd be interested for recommendations. Um. I mean, to me, watching is the is the biggest thing. Uh, I also like reading articles and books and things about sort of the component parts of the game. Like I'm, you know, I've read a couple of um, the, the Fangraphs annuals and the, the, some baseball perspective books and things like that. And when you're looking at articles that sort of go into a specific, of course, I have no examples, no concrete examples in, in the top of my head because. It's uh, ten thirty at night. I'm exhausted. But you know, articles about a particular statistic or a particular trait in the game that then itemize a lot of examples of that. I find that that's a very helpful thing. Then I start looking for that in in other in players. You know, um, but I wouldn't say there's one particular type of article or article I would recommend. I just think that maybe figuring out a statistic or a mindset that you personally agree with. And then doing a little bit of watching with that 
mindset. Like, uh, I remember, this is going back a number of years, I um, I read Moneyball right when it came out, and it was, you know, um, at this point, Joe Morgan was still telling people that Billy Bean wrote it. Um, right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that he was saying that on, that on-base percentage, he was saying that walks are better than home runs. That was a famous Joe Morgan uh, quote that Billy that Billy Bean supposedly wrote, and so after I read the book and I, I saw the sort of uh, the correlation between getting on base and scoring runs, that became something that I was much more aware of looking out for. So I just think just the more you read, the more you see, the more you take in, you just become more aware of these things. I still don't think I'm a great evaluator of talent when watching baseball, especially low level talent. You know, I'm not. Jeff or Greg or Steve or any of the guys we've had on the show that that have a real scouting background or or consider themselves, you know, good at looking at prospects and doing evaluation. I just find that the more I read about the game and the more I try and take in, the more I just understand the component pieces of the game and the more I'm I'm able to evaluate performance on the limited level that I can evaluate it. Yeah, I'll I'll go with that. I think uh, that sums it up well. Um, yeah, there's no one thing that I would point to. Uh, and that's because there's so much good stuff out there, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's sort of just, I guess my biggest thing with it is like zoom out. Uh, you know, if you're looking at time and kind of contextualize what you're seeing when you watch, you know, you, you don't write off what you've seen entirely but just be willing to hear things that might not sound right to you at first Mm -hmm. but then you know understand why they don't or just understand that sometimes our eyes deceive us you know a big Um, thing for me was learning to trust process over results yeah and that's a pretty common you know pretty fundamental thing but you know I think for a lot of us, or maybe this is just me projecting, our dads are more old school baseball fans than we are. I know my dad certainly is. My dad's a huge fan of Dusty Baker as a manager. And I remember trying to have a conversation with him and he's like, wherever he goes, he wins. And it's it's hard to argue against that, you know, going back to like the childhood example, like it's hard to argue against the this rock has stopped me from being attacked by tigers. You know, I've never been attacked by tigers. I've had this rock my whole life, you know. It's easy to discredit that, but it's hard to disprove that. You know, I feel like with, with, with someone like Dusty Baker, where, you know, my dad says, you know, he wins everywhere he goes, it can be very hard to disprove that unless if you're just looking at the results. So by learning to trust the process a little bit more, because hopefully process is more predictable than results are, that that, that was a big learning curve for me when my... Uh, when my statistical awakening in the early aughts happened. Yeah. It's a boring answer. I'm sorry, Liam. Uh, well, this might be a fun way to end it. He asks us if we have any music recommendations. So, uh, Chris, what are you listening to lately? Ah, uh, let's see. Well, this will come as a shock to everyone, but the new Wilco record. Yep. Schmilko is quite good. Yes. Uh, if you don't know their earlier stuff, then what I'm saying isn't going to really be relevant, but it's definitely one of their mo- more low-key albums that they've ever made, yep. uh, but enjoyable. Every song, I think, is good. Um, 
going back, I'm, uh, I like to you know kind of think of the shows uh-huh. that have been really good. So uh, favorite shows of the year certainly included Ty Siegel, uh, Mac DeMarco. So Ty Siegel, the album Manipulator is the way to go. Mac DeMarco's records are all good. Um, <clears throat> so they, yeah, they are among my recommendations. Uh, there's there's more. There's been quite a bit of good stuff out this year. But I'll, I'll go with those three just off the top of my head. So... Um... My uh, my friend Vince and I keep an uh, keep a Google Doc going, where we rank every record we listen to this year, and so I'm just looking at that. Um, Walter Martin's Arts and Leisure. Walter Martin was a member of the Walkmen for many years. That album is great. Uh, the self titled Heron Oblivion debut record, really, really, really good. Uh, what else did I love this year? Um, the Twin Peaks record, Down in Heaven. Uh, the band Islands released two albums this year. Both are good, but Should I Remain at Sea is my favorite of the two. Um, I'm a white man in my 30s, so I have to say Radiohead. Oh, yeah, I forget a Moonshade Pool. Um, it's really good. It is really good. <laughs> um, William Tyler's Modern Country is an instrumental record. It's really, really good. Um, Glenn Cochi of Wilco plays drums on that. Uh, let me give you two more. Uh, the Dave King Trucking Company is a jazz group out of Minneapolis. Their album Surrounded by the Night is fantastic. And we'll go with, uh, uh, we'll, we'll keep on the Wilco train here. Nellis Klein's new record Lovers is very different from what he's normally done, but I really like it. Yeah. Have you heard it yet? Yeah, actually, I've not heard all of it yet, which I am embarrassed to admit <laughs> as a big fan of his. Uh, I did go and see him play strictly acoustic, not plugged in to anything uh, improvisational set with Mark Rebo. I'm so jealous of that. I'm so, it was on my calendar and I forgot to go to it. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty great. Yeah. Pretty, pretty unique. Um, and I've gotten to see him do a bunch of crazy different things live. Uh, so I've heard, I've heard several tracks from the album lovers. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I just haven't heard the whole thing yet. And that's on me. Uh-huh. I can't blame the busy summer anymore. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just need to get to it. And I'll say one more. Uh, the record is called four by the band, bad, bad, not good. They're kind of an instrumental hip hop type thing. Really interesting and good. So. That's uh, those are my music recommendations. Send in your music re- recommendations along with your questions to podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. We'd love to hear them. Hey, Mets fans, it's your friend Steve Schreiber here, and it's time for your This Week in SNY Minute here on Amazing Avenue Audio. So if you're a big Seinfeld fan like I am, you know already know that Keith Hernandez is a uh, Civil War buff. Um, I don't know how you get to be a buff, but Keith is. Um, and earlier this year, we found out that Keith apparently knows a thing or two about Impressionist art. Uh, so Keith's a, kind of a Renaissance man, 
And uh, we found out a little bit more about his interests um, when Marlins pitcher Brian Ellington came to the game. Keith let us know uh, that we shouldn't confuse Brian Ellington with Duke Ellington, of course, the great jazz musician. And frankly, I don't know how we would um, since Duke Ellington has been dead since 1974. But anyway, that's Keith Hernandez being Keith Hernandez. In the end, he's just looking out for all of us, so do nothing till you hear from Keith. Now, here's the clip. Ellington just back today with the September call-ups. Not to be confused with the late, great uh, Duke Ellington. Hardly. Well, he's the West Florida Ellington, University of West Florida. I was just listening to an old Duke Ellington album at home the other night on my iTunes. Uh, it's great, famous concert in the 60s, I believe it was, early 60s in Paris. It's a wonderful album. I believe it's a double album live. Fantastic. How come we never wrote about the 7 train? If you take the seven train. There were some tremendous talents um, back then, obviously. <laughs> and I was fortunate enough to be in the car driving and listening on the radio, and they had a whole hour of um, kind of a chronological order of Count Basie, which was just fantastic. So that's all we've got for your This Week in SNY Minute here on Amazing Avenue Audio. I'm Steve Shriver. Now back to the rest of the podcast. Hello, Met fans. I'm Lucas Vajos, and this is the Weekly Stat. I'm recording this on Tuesday night, about 11 p.m. Pacific Time, and the Mets have just... If my math is correct, jumped into first the first wild card spot after TJ Rivera saved saved the day with his tenth inning homer against the Nationals, and the Giants lost to the Padres six to four. Um, so that puts the Mets back in the or not even back in the first wild card spot in the first wild card spot after they were in single digits in terms of playoff odds about a month ago, so a really fantastic rise. The Cardinals and Giants are still nipping at uh, their heels, of course, but right now they have a better chance of making the playoffs than not and have even put themselves in a decent position to host the wild card game, which probably offers some level of advantage. Um, and is good for the Wilpons finances. Hoorah. So I, I originally, this was originally going to be another pessimistic segment bashing Jay Bruce because as you've probably picked up on by now I am not a fan of Jay Bruce nor was I a fan of that trade uh, so I was actually curious just how bad badly Bruce has struggled in the second half compared to his first half um, so I pulled all the qualified batters from the first half and the second half and I'm just looking at the difference in their weighted runs created plus to see who has gone, who who has really declined the most. Um, 
And I, I really did expect Bruce to be towards the bottom of the list. In the first half, he was batting 267, 315, 538 uh, with 18 homers. That's good for a 119 weighted runs created plus. Uh, and in the second half, he's actually at 213, 284, 437 with 11 home runs. And there's still a decent amount of time there with the Reds. Um, but it's unfair to judge him based on such a small sample with the Mets. Uh, and in actuality, the second half sample, which is small on its own, uh, is, is not nearly as bad as he's been since he came to New York. Um, still, that's, that's a pretty significant drop. That's a 119 OPS to a, uh, weighted runs created plus, excuse me, to a 90 weighted runs created plus. So you go from 20% above average to 10% below. Obviously not the Mets, not what the Mets were hoping to acquire when they gave up Dozen Herrera and Max Hotel. And that production is poor enough to make you consider declining Bruce's option next season, particularly when you consider his defensive limitations. However, let's just consider how much worse uh, this could have been. Uh, of the batters that have qualified, or enough at-bats to qualify in both the first and second half, Bruce is only the 32nd worst in terms of his decline from the first two second halves. Um, the worst being Marcelo Zuna, who's gone from a 137 in the first half to a 57 in the second half. Uh, there's been some injuries in there. There's a lot of injured guys on this list. Uh, Jake Lamb um, is up there. Uh, he's probably the best example. Uh, Cozart's had some knee issues, and he's dropped a lot. Um, and then there are some guys who uh, were just batting stupendously in the first half and have gone down, like David Ortiz, who was at a 182 and is batting a measly 134 now. Um, but the point here is that Bruce has only declined by 29, and there are 30 other batters who have declined by uh, 30 or more in weighted runs created plus. Even on the Mets, Bruce isn't, in, isn't the worst, as Curtis Granderson despite his recent homer binge in uh, against the Reds and the Braves, went from a 115 to an 83, which is a drop of 32, and his weighted runs created plus. So um, I'm definitely a culprit of this, but um, Met fans as a whole are as well. Uh, Bruce hasn't been as much of a disaster as we perceived. Um, obviously a disappointing acquisition, and still a trade that deserves close scrutiny, if not downright criticism. Um, but things could be a lot, lot worse, and we should perhaps appreciate that he hasn't totally fallen off a cliff, such like players like uh, Jackie Bradley or Wilson Ramos, who have both dropped 50 weighted runs created plus in the second half, or even Will Myers, who's closer to 60, Ian Desmond, who's closer to 70. Uh, so, so perhaps we have been a bit too critical of Bruce and just need to hope he can get hot for a couple of weeks, uh, even, and then we can answer the long-term questions after the season. And that is your weekly stat. Stu Johnson is the radio voice of the Brooklyn Cyclones. He is a Johns Hopkins alum, and you can find him on Twitter at StuJo11. 
Chris chatted with him the other night, and here is that conversation. Joining us this week on Mason Avenue Audio is Stuart Johnson. He is the radio voice of the Brooklyn Cyclones and has been since the start of the 2014 season. Stuart, thanks for coming on. How are you? I'm good, Chris. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, our pleasure. Uh, I guess we'll start. We'll go back a little bit. You've been with the Cyclones now for three years. Uh, you've seen over that span as much low-A baseball, I think, as just about anybody. Um, but how did you get into broadcasting and you know what what happened to to land that gig with the cyclones uh i started broadcasting in college um and i did it just as a part-time job uh and i loved it really enjoyed my time there had some aptitude for it i thought so i figured once i got out i would try to get an opportunity to do it for a living at least for a little bit and uh, ended up landing in Brooklyn, which was a great fit for me because I grew up in New York City and I grew up a Mets fan. So uh, it was obviously a cool opportunity to do that and also to be with an organization that is kind of the class of uh, minor league baseball in terms of how well it's run and uh, the fan support and all of that. So um, have been there now for three summers and have really enjoyed it and have seen some some good players, some memorable games and uh I've uh, I've had a lot of fun during the time I've I've been there for sure. Yeah, I think one of the things that the New York Penn League experience offers, uh, and uh, for me, uh, our listeners know I'm I live in the Bronx, so it's a little bit of a trek to get down to Coney Island and back. But you know, one of the things is that you'll see things that you might not think you would see in a professional baseball game. But I don't know. I think that sort of adds to the fun of it, and and. The Cyclones have this whole culture where, you know, you have Cyclones fans, you know, not just people who are into it because they're Mets fans who are following the minor leagues, which obviously is a part of it. But, you know, it's a very different feel from the minor league teams that I grew up with in Connecticut. Yeah, absolutely. It's a cool venue to go to, first of all, because you're at Coney Island. So you're surrounded by all the amusement park rides and the boardwalk and the beach. Uh, and then there's a really passionate group of fans, as you said, not all of the Mets fans. I think I would say about 60 percent, 70 percent of our fans are Mets fans, but the rest root for the Yankees or maybe the root for another major league team. Or maybe they're not really a big major league baseball fan, but they, they like going to Brooklyn for uh, the atmosphere there and to follow the team. And so that's kind of unique and special. And it's one of the reasons the team has led the league in attendance every year since it's uh, first season in 2001 so it's been a lot of fun going there for that reason as you said uh it's a little different than major league baseball Uh, i know our opening night this could theoretically happen in major league baseball but it doesn't happen much we played a 20 inning game against the staten island yankees and that was uh, about as surreal a moment as you can have and then the next night we played a 10 inning game and were no hit and lost two to one on a walk-off hit in staten island and then two nights after that we played a 17 inning six-hour game against the uh, Astros affiliate that uh, went past one of the mornings. So the first week of the season alone for us felt like uh, a little bit of a surreal experience. But, you know, minor league baseball is one of those things that uh, has a lot of quirks, and it's not always the prettiest brand of baseball, but it's uh, it's a lot of fun. And you get access to people, to players, uh, and to things you wouldn't normally see. So that's one of the upsets of it. Yeah, and I think the – Cyclones manager over the past couple of seasons has sort of added to that. You know, you, you see these quotes uh, that he gives about players and the team, and they're just very openly honest. Um, 
you know, and I think that's that's sort of endearing from a fan's perspective and unique even in, you know, minor league baseball. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's a it's definitely a pretty cool experience overall. Yeah, Tom Gamboa has been in baseball for over four decades, so he's at the point where he doesn't need to mince his words or <laughs> <laughs> try to please anybody. Uh, with what he has to say, and he's actually just retired uh, at the end of this season uh, after three seasons as the Cyclones manager. And I got to say, from my perspective, going in my first job in pro ball in 2014 and having overlapped with him now for the three years in Brooklyn, really can't imagine a better person to work with every day as the manager of the team than Tom because he's very well-spoken, he's very accessible, and as you said, he's very honest. So uh, you sort of get an idea of what he's thinking, and that helps inform my view on – the players I've seen come through Brooklyn. So speaking of the players, uh, you know, there have been some interesting ones who have gone through over the last few years, but uh, this year, I think, you know, a couple of the draftees from this year's draft, uh, a couple of players who had been in the organization before that, but got up to that level were among the more interesting names. Yep. As, uh, as my dog chimes in, (laughs) Welcome. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, Pete Alonzo uh, from this year's draft, Desmond Lindsay from the previous one, uh, the, those two seem, you know, you look at them on paper, they certainly produced when they were with the team. Uh, you know, even in the context of a short season, it wasn't a huge sample for either of them. But, uh, you know, what did you see with each of those two guys? And, you know, were there any other hitters who might have stood out in ways that you wouldn't see if you just look at, you know, the leaderboards for the Cyclones? Well, I'll start off by saying that this, for the second straight year, was not a very good offensive team. And uh, they hit 216 as a team this year, which I believe was the lowest mark in all of minor league baseball. So it's not a particularly productive group top to bottom. But those two guys you mentioned, Alonzo, and uh, Lindsey did stand out, and for different reasons. Alonzo's case, uh, this is a guy who has tremendous power, and that was something that was evident throughout his three years in college at the University of Florida. But there are always questions, how does that power translate to wood bats and to playing every single day on the minor league schedule? And he only got into 30 games because he signed a little bit late because he was playing in the College World Series, and then he came to Brooklyn and then he actually injured his pinky sliding into second base, and so he missed uh, most of August. But while he was in the lineup, it was an entirely different feel to the games that were played. Alonzo really kind of infused the entire order with a little bit more punch. Uh, he had five home runs. He had 12 doubles. He slugged almost 600. He had 321. So uh, Pete played really well, and he had a home run in Hudson Valley that went over the batter's eye in center field, which is about 400 feet away then the batter's eye itself is probably about 20 feet tall and I talked to the people there and they said in the 20 years of the ballpark he was only the second player they could remember hitting a home run over the batter's eye in center field and that's the type of power he has and we actually this year had exit velocity for the first time we had the trackman system set up for our home games and then throughout the league and pete was hitting home runs at 110 111 miles per hour off the bat 114 miles per hour on one of his doubles so that's elite-level power. Uh, the question for Alonzo is going to be whether he can sustain that at the higher levels when he faces pitchers, especially right-handers who throw him harder breaking stuff. But the comparison I heard a number of times for Alonzo is a guy like Mike Napoli, who's 
right-handed who will always hit lefties, has tremendous raw power, and then he could perhaps grow into uh, being a little bit better of a contact hitter, but definitely an intriguing guy and a player who really embraced playing every day. Some guys get worn down by it. When I asked him what the biggest difference was between college and professional baseball, he said playing every day, which most guys say, but he said that in a positive way because he could focus on the craft and the art of playing baseball, which to him was, you could tell, the most important thing in his life. Lindsey's a different type of guy. He's incredibly athletic, center fielder, for those who don't know. The Mets took him out of uh, high school in last year's draft, as he said, so he's only 19. And he's had this slew of hamstring injuries that have really hindered his development. And this season, it got him out of the field late. So he played the last month or so of the season and played very well. And he, if he can stay healthy, is intriguing because he's got really good power, especially in the opposite field. He runs well. He's a good center fielder. Uh, plays pretty good defense, and so he brings a lot to the table. And he hit four home runs, and they were all at home, which is hard to do because MCU Park is not a hitter-friendly venue. So those two guys were exciting to watch. Uh, the rest of the lineup had some real holes in it, as I sort of alluded to. So uh, if you're a prospect guy watching this team, there wasn't a ton to be excited about. Colby Woodmancy had a pretty good season. He was uh, a shortstop the Mets took out of Arizona State this year. Um, but he is uh, certainly a step behind those guys. But he played pretty much every day, and he held his own, uh, and he looked okay defensively. And there were some questions about how he would handle shortstop because he's six foot three, he's a bigger guy. But I thought his hands and his uh, first step was enough to carry him through, at least at this level. So those are some of the guys who kind of stood out, talking specifically about certain position players. Yeah, yeah, I know. I only got down to one game this summer, uh, unfortunately, but. Alonzo hit a foul ball, and it was just foul. But if it had been fair, it, it would have been a home run by a long way. Uh, and I, I've had a chance to see a couple of Cyclones games over the years in Hudson Valley, and uh, I, I can back up the distance and height of the the batter's eye there. That you know, that's a that's a pretty serious home run. And I hadn't actually realized that he hit one over that. So that's that's impressive. On the pitching side, Harold Gonzalez sort of stole the show. He led the team in uh, in strikeouts this year, or led the league in strikeouts this year, set a franchise record for single-season strikeouts, uh, finished the year with a 2.01 ERA, which you, you never want to read too much into an ERA at any given level of the minors, but still pretty good. Uh, so, he got plenty of attention. You know, uh, we had written about him a decent amount on the site, uh, even recently, sort of a season review. But I was curious to get your take. I got to see him pitch the one game that I was at. Uh, but curious to hear your take on who he is as a pitcher and whether or not you think that can work, you know, as he graduates up the uh, minor league ladder. Very cerebral pitcher. Uh, he knows how to set guys up because he doesn't throw all that hard. He's about 89, 90, 91 maybe miles per hour when we saw him this year in Brooklyn. But his changeup is superb, and he's got a really good knack for knowing when to throw it. He'll throw it to lefties. He'll throw it to righties. And he has a breaking ball as well, which was effective. And he would just keep guys off balance pretty much every start he made. So Harold was about as composed a pitcher as you'll see at 21 years old in terms of his knowledge of hitters and watching their swing and making adjustments and also his poise of the mound, even if things went wrong 
in the field behind him, or if he gave up a well-struck ball, he would bounce back pretty quickly. The question for Harrell is because he's only about 5'10", 5'11", and he doesn't throw all that hard, whether he can sustain success with pitchability and not velocity at the higher levels. And, uh, you know, that's something that is hard to do. And there certainly have been pitchers who have done it, right-handers who have done it. Um, our manager, Tom Gamboa, would often make note of, you know, the Greg Maddoxes of the world. But obviously those pitchers are few and far between. So it'll be interesting to see how Harrell handles the adjustment when he moves to the higher levels. And I would think next year there isn't a whole lot for Harold to gain pitching it uh, in the Sally League. I just think he's the type of guy who you almost want to get up to St. Lucie quickly and see can he do this against really high-level talent uh, or not. And so we'll see how the Mets choose to handle him. But he was a lot of fun to watch, and I'll say also a lot of fun to cover because Harold was about the most liked person I can remember during my three years here. Everyone loved Harold. I'm miserable during the season. I'm a grouch, but I love Harold. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, he was great. And, and, and I'm certainly the type of guy you root for. Um, and uh, we'll see whether that sort of mix of being very cerebral and having very good command of his pitches is enough at the higher levels. Obviously, there are some scouts who have their doubts, but um, the guys have done it, so we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, um, and then just sort of looking down the list in terms of pitchers, there were several interesting pitchers who spent at least some time with the team. Uh, Mirandi Gonzalez, who you know finished at a two point eight seven ERA, uh, so not quite as good in terms of the overall results, but uh, certainly had a, a good season there. And then a couple of guys who I think people who follow Mets prospects are pretty familiar with the names at least uh, in Thomas Zapaki getting a few starts with the team after he was promoted and then Justin Dunn uh, particularly since he was a first round pick so I guess just you know briefly with those three guys um, you know w- what were your first impressions especially with the two who were only there briefly and then you know with Mirandi, uh what did you see over the course of his you know full season with the team yeah, I'll take uh, Mirandi first. And, and Mirandi was the opposite of Harold in that he was a guy who threw really, really hard consistently, just did not have a great command of his stuff in every start. So he would throw 94, 95 pretty consistently, get it up to 96, 97, which is interesting because he's not a big-bodied guy. He's only about six one, I would say. But he threw hard, and, and he was able to get a lot of movement on his fastball to the point where it was actually kind of difficult for some of the catchers who hadn't worked with him before to receive him until they'd gotten some reps. But it was very difficult for hitters to square up when he was pitching well. And then his off-speed stuff is a work in progress. And he's got a change-up, and he's got, I would say, basically a slider. I mean, they call it a sort of a slurvy breaking ball, but uh, it had a lot of bite to it. Uh, so he was intriguing because of the velocity. And that's the thing when the scouts came to the ballpark that they would say is that Harold's the guy at this level who's going to have the most success, but Mirandi is a guy you can project forward because of how hard he threw. But there were a lot of starts this year where he had to leave early because he'd hit his pitch limit for an inning or he would hit his pitch limit for the game a lot sooner than you would like because he was going deep into counts and he was wild and he was walking guys. So there were a number of starts that got cut short, whether it was two innings or not even one inning because he was throwing so many pitches. So we'll, we'll see how he moves forward, but he's definitely a guy who folks who follow prospects should put on their radar, and I don't know that he was there before this year. Plus, 
it's only 20, so that's always something that works in your favor, too. Um, Thomas Apucky and Justin Dunn were both guys who I was excited to see this year. I'll start with Dunn. He began as a reliever, and then he transitioned into a starting role, but those would be three-inning starts, so nothing uh, at great length because they had him on an innings limit following his college season at Boston College. He pitched well. Um, Justin is a player who will take some time because he was a reliever his first couple years in college and only began starting in the middle of the 2016 season at BC. So this is all kind of due to him. And as a starter, obviously, you need to have three or four pitches instead of just one or two. But the fastball was pretty consistent, 95, 96 miles an hour. He was throwing hard. Uh, he's got a slider, which is, in the Mets' view, his best breaking ball. They actually had a number of starts where they asked him to kind of put the curveball in his back pocket and just focus on the slider. And then his changeup was pretty good, too. Uh, his strikeout numbers were very good with us. Um, you know, there, there were a few starts where he ran into trouble. He is going to take a little bit longer to move forward than a lot of college pitchers, but the upside is real, especially when you see how hard he throws. He's also an incredibly smart guy and uh, a player who fans would enjoy rooting for if he makes it to City Field, which I anticipate at some point he will. Yeah, he and had the, he had that endearing uh, you know draft video, the, the right. celebratory. Right. You know, and I think that was sort of an early moment where Mets fans could connect with him. You know, to just it, it, you know you really see like oh that's just that's a kid you know and his whole life just changed and. You know, it's very different from the NFL draft or, you know, even like the NCAA selection show where, you know, there's big cameras and all that. Like you're seeing the cell phone video in like a restaurant, which I thought was uh, kind of a cool way to to see him react. Yeah, he was watching with his teammates at a Buffalo Wild Wings down in Miami before the uh, <laughs> regional, and, and they're all going nuts. And, and, you know, it was a cool story because Boston College, not really a big baseball school, and they had this fantastic season this year, and he was a huge part of that. And he's also a New Yorker. You know, he grew up in Long Island. He grew up in Freeport. So that's another layer of it as well, uh, which is pretty cool. And uh, Justin said he was excited to be with the Mets because he knows how well they've developed pitchers over the last few years. So that's kind of a, an intriguing part of it as well, for sure. Um, and, and to Thomas Opucky, who you mentioned earlier, uh, he kind of surprised me with just how good he was. And he only made four starts in Brooklyn, and, I mean, they were just lights out. He was throwing uh, hard. He had a good command of his uh, his breaking ball, his changeup, which was really not a pitch for him that he'd used before he reached Brooklyn, was also pretty good. He made four starts, and he had double-digit strikeouts in three of the four. And the cool part to me was that changeup because he had gotten by in Kingsport just throwing his fastball and his curveball, and then he got to Brooklyn, and before he made his first start, Ron Romanek, who's the Mets pitching coordinator, worked with him on a new grip for the changeup. And for whatever reason, that particular grip worked for him. And so he started throwing it in that first start against the Yankees, the Staten Island Yankees, who had a lot of right-handed hitters in the order. Uh, He's a lefty. And he got great results with it. And he continued to throughout his uh, remaining three starts. And he had a a minor bit of back tightness, and the Mets shut him down. Uh, He'd already thrown 52 innings uh, in his first full professional season. He was a high school draftee the year before. 
Uh, and it was really cool to see how well he performed. So that is a guy who should be on everybody's radar moving forward. And there were some maturity questions about Sopucky in 2015 down in the Gulf Coast League. I think he may have rubbed some people the wrong way. But uh, the Mets coaches, to a man, said that when they saw him show up at spring training this year, an extended spring as well, that he seemed like a much more mature guy. And I got that sense, too. I mean, I wouldn't say this if I didn't believe it to be true. I thought his teammates liked him and respected him a lot this year. So that was a very encouraging sign. Uh, you know, he's a really young guy. He's just turned 20 uh, right before the season started. So to see him take that next step in his maturation as well as look really good on the mound are both very encouraging signs. And guy is the build you want to see. He's about 6'2", 200 pounds, big, strong left-hander, and he's throwing hard. So uh, all of that is, is encouraging. Yeah, I think that sort of growing process is, is just such a different thing, uh, you know, for the grand majority of us who don't play professional sports, you know, uh, especially with these guys who get drafted out of high school, you, you tend to spend those years in college or, you know, even if you don't go to college in your first few years and, you know, out in the world working. Uh, and from even from 18 to 21, I think everyone is a very different person or, or at least has gone through a lot of growth. So to do all that, you know, in various parts of the United States playing minor league baseball, uh, it, I think it's just a very, very different way to sort of, you know, turn into a, a really an adult. Yeah, it's definitely true that baseball is a unique way to make a living. And if you're a young guy, you don't have really anything in your life that prepares you for what this is. Because if you're playing in high school, what are you playing, like three, four games a week, maybe? And over a pretty short period of time during the spring semester. And yes, I know that there are travel uh, tournaments and there's a lot of exposure to baseball outside of school now, but nothing really prepares you for the grind of playing 76 games in 80 days as you do in the New York Penn League following a pretty exhausting extended spring training down there in Florida when you're grinding it out every day um, early in the morning in pretty nasty hot weather conditions. So yeah, it's uh, it's not unusual for guys, as you said, especially the guys who come out of high school or the international guys who enter this process even younger, 16 or so, um, to evolve as people during that period and to get a greater sense of maturity. And that's one of the cool parts about working with guys at this level is that they're still developing. So even as a broadcaster, I don't work with them on their development as players or as people, but I do get to observe it. And it can change a lot from one season to the next if you have a guy who's at your level for two years or even from the start of a season to the end of it. So observing those transformations is usually one of the more interesting parts of my job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I guess just before, uh, before we let you go, any other, any other pitchers who jumped out, out at you, you know, whether it was a, you know, a raw physical talent uh, that you saw, or, you know, just somebody who maybe doesn't get the attention that the guys that we spoke about does who, could kind of, you know, turn into somebody. Yeah, I can, give, I can give you two guys who really jumped out to me. One of them is Gary Cornish, who was a draft pick this year out of the University of San Diego, where he was a college teammate of 
P.J. Conlon has already kind of risen quickly through the Mets system. He was taken the year before. And the Mets took Cornish in the 19th round, and I don't think he got a particularly large bonus, about $10,000 or so. And he had 44 strikeouts and three walks this year in 25 innings coming out of the bullpen, which is really good. And Gary was a um, reliever and a starter in college, but mostly a starter. And the Mets are going to work with him as a starter beginning next year. But he came out of the bullpen for the Cyclones, and he threw pretty hard. And um, he just had great command, and he got better and better as the season went on. So Cornish was an interesting guy, and another guy who I think is pretty smart as a pitcher. And he throws hard enough that you could see him as a back-end reliever, too, if the starting route doesn't click for him. He's a guy you could easily slide into the bullpen. And then another guy who was used as a reliever for Brooklyn and I think would be a reliever throughout the minors and, and throughout his career is Joe Zangi. And Zangi is a uh, a guy who the Reds had drafted in 2015, and then they couldn't agree on terms to his contract. So he became a free agent, essentially, and he threw a bullpen in front of J.P. Ricciardi. Yeah, Ricciardi liked him. And so after throwing one on the city field mound uh, last, uh, I guess it was early this spring, uh, Ricciardi signed him to a contract. He went down to spring training, and he pitched really well um, out of the bullpen. He was effectively the closer for this team. Fastball, 94, 95, and a really good slider. Just two pitches, so that's why it sort of seems like a reliever moving forward. 45 strikeouts and 29 innings, just 15 walks. And uh, Joe, who was a converted catcher, he was a catcher throughout college, um, has that kind of short arm action you associate with a lot of guys who have gone from being behind the plate to being on the mound. And he had really good movement on both his pitches. Uh, he was fun to watch. And he grew up a Mets fan, so that's always fun. He grew up in Milford, Connecticut, and he was a big fan of the Piazza-era Mets in the late 90s, early 2000s. On the first day when we were doing kind of media day and recording a lot of the videos that we show on the board throughout the year, we were doing baseball trivia. And we're asking a bunch of these guys Mets trivia questions. And I thought there was no way that any of these guys who grew up rooting for other teams are going to be able to answer questions about the 86 Mets who played, you know, 10 <laughs> years before they were born. And Joe Zangi is busy rattling off, you know. He knew Ray Knight scored the winning run in game six of the 86 World Series. He knew Jesse Orozco got the last out. He could tell you about the Grand Slam single from Robin Ventura. So it's always kind of cool when you've got guys like that who uh, actually grew up rooting for the team that they are now playing for. And uh, not only that, he's a pretty good pitcher. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a black Mets hat in a closet somewhere for him. Uh <laughs> Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And I loved this year we had the promotion for Mike Piazza when he got inducted into the Hall of Fame where we wrote, wrote out special uniforms that were basically looked like those black 90s, 2000s Mets uniforms, except it said BKLYN in orange and blue across the front. And uh, it was cool seeing uh, seeing those, especially on the day Piazza got inducted. And I think Zangie really liked it. I think he wanted to keep his. So I'm not sure if he managed to pull that off or not, but uh, it's definitely part of his childhood. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, Stuart, thanks again for coming on. Our listeners can find Stuart on, on Twitter uh, at StuJo11, S-T-U-J-O-1-1. Uh, and, of course, you can hear him uh, calling Cyclones games, which are available on the Cyclones website and on the radio at uh, Stu. 90.3 WKRB FM. There we go. So, yeah. 
Yeah, thanks again for coming on. A pleasure, Chris. Thanks a lot for having me. What's up, Mets fans? Greg Karam here along with Steve Saipa. And yes, it is Steve Saipa. We have confirmation. Uh, we have confirmation from Steve himself that that is how we pronounce his name. Steve, how you doing? I am good. How are you, Greg? I am chilling. Um, we are going to continue our discussion of the 2016 minor league season. And we are going to talk about the Mets consensus top prospect, Ahmed Rosario. And he had a great, he had a big year, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, coming into the year, we were just kind of waiting for him to hit and hit. He did. Uh, he repeated high a St. Lucie, um, where he hit 309, 359, 442. He had a 12.4% strikeout rate. And uh, that earned himself a promotion to Binghamton in the midseason, where he went on to hit 341, 392, 481. Struck out a bit more, walked a bit more, um, but very young for the level, uh, given his age. Uh, Steve, what did you, what do you think about Ahmed Rosario? I mean, it's hard not to look at his performance and not have uh, images of, you know, Jose Reyes as a minor leaguer back in the day. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a similar, it's a similar kind of profile, I guess. I mean, maybe not as much speed and maybe there's a little bit more projection into power there, but he put it all together this year, you know, coming into the year, we weren't really sure. I mean, people thought he was going to hit and we'll talk about that later, but you know, he, he did this year. He put that elite bat speed to work. Um, he was able to, he turned on everything. I mean, he, he could hit balls in any part of any quadrant of the strike zone. And uh, he looked really comfortable at the plate. Um, he's got plus speed now. Um, I guess we didn't know that beforehand, but I mean, he's a fast, he's a fast runner. Um, he's got solid range. It's short, good arm. Um, you know, it's a very exciting profile. Um, what do you think? I mean, do you think he's going to be a guy who can be up in, in the majors next year and contributing? Uh, maybe not next year. Um, but, I mean, if he performs again next season like he has this year, you know, he has a pretty decent shot for making the team, you know, the second half of the year. But, you know, he's only 20. I, I see no reason to necessarily rush him. That's true. Um, I guess there is no rush, but you know, if he's ready, you know. Yeah, if he's ready, he's ready. If he's ready, he's ready. So that, that's an interesting question. So, like, the Mets are very fairly thin in the uh, at you know in the middle infield, I guess you could say. With you know the, the injuries all over the place. You know, Cabrera has the knee issue. Um, you know, Flores has a thing now. Uh, and, and your only real shortstop backup is is who you know Gavin Chikini and Matt Reynolds. Neither one of them are Ex are shortstops. Maybe yes. Know. So you know, should I don't think should the Mets have added Ahmed Rosario to the forty man roster in case of emergency for the postseason? You know, like you saw with what happened uh, with um, Kansas City and. Um, Raul Mondesi last year. 
Um, I think it's an interesting question because you know he's he's got all the tools. It's kind of like uh, it, it. It's he, he since he's so young, and you know when I think of Rosario, I still think of you know a, a such a young shortstop. He's still so raw. He's still putting everything again together. And now that he actually has put everything together for at least one season, it's hard to actually think of him now as like an almost complete product. You know, to me, in my mind, he's still such a raw prospect, you know. Right. So just even thinking about like, well, maybe we should, maybe we could, you know, add him to the 40-man roster. It's it's such a weird, you It's know, a weird thing to think about because yeah. he's, he's been around for a while and he seems, seems like such a baby, but I mean... You know, he's got facial hair now. He's got a better beard than I can probably grow. So, <laughs> um, so you know, with that, you know, he's come a long way. And people had been saying he was going to hit for years. Uh, he was holding his own at various levels throughout the minors and hadn't really hit at an above average rate at any of these levels, just kind of holding his own. Um, but people... People said he was going to hit. Um, you know, go, coming into the season, it, I I could kind of see it. I mean, because he had elite bat speed, and so that was something that you could dream on. You could be like, okay, this guy's, you know, once he settles down and, and puts on some muscle, he's going to put that bat speed to work, and you know, he's going to start hitting a ball, and that's that's eventually what happened. So something learned there. But you know, as you evaluate hitters, what is it? that you're looking for, you know, beyond just good, good numbers, you know, if you're going to be watching a guy, what are the types of things that you're looking for to see from him in order to project him to be, you know, a good prospect? I mean, there's so many different things. There's obviously like their physical makeup. Um, You want to, hopefully the player has, you know, decent, swing mechanics you know not too many moving parts not too many hitches things like that um short to the ball that kind of thing right quick you know strong wrists uh quick bat quick bat good good bat path so yeah so there's a lot that yeah there's definitely a lot that goes into it so many different things and you know you can look at these guys and say okay he's got a nice swing Okay, but the the bottom line is they have to hit, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just it's a funny thing when we're projecting these batters, these position players, for us to be able to say, okay, this guy's gonna hit. He hasn't done it yet, and then just kind of try to avoid look, just looking at the stat line, and for that confirmation. And I think it's just a, it's just an interesting process to go through. I mean, like, are there any guys in the system right now who? kind of underperformed who you know you think might take a leap going forward uh off the top of my head i mean i can't really think of anyone <laughs> that's put me on the spot but. i did i did i did kind of put you on the spot there and um, you know what i hadn't really thought of anyone myself <laughs> yeah i mean i remember last year i when we were doing one of our podcasts last year i remember saying that i thought david thompson was one of our guys that was going to take us a, a step forward from 2015 and he he certainly did the first half uh you know the second half he yeah. slowed down a little bit because of injury and maybe also just the the grind of the season 
But also, I mean, he was a somewhat high-level draft pick, and he had a terrible season in Brooklyn. So, I mean, that wasn't that much of a reach. But So, let me ask you, did you see Ali Sanchez this year? Uh, yeah, twice, yes. So, he doesn't really hit that much. So, And people seem to like... What's he's got going on? What do you do? You see anything there that um, leads you to believe that he's gonna hit? Aside from other people who are smarter than me and get paid more than me, <laughs> saying that he should. <laughs> so, um, so it's it's it. Does nothing really jumps out, or one of the problems with Sanchez is that he had like a um, there's a deal a wrist injury or a finger injury like at the beginning of the season mm-hmm. and that's when I saw like I saw him while he was you know like a day or two after he was back from that you know back in the lineup um and then I saw him again on the last day of the season I think he was DHing mm-hmm. um and it was only for a couple of at bats and my you know my real interest on that day was more on Dunn and Harold Gonzalez than you know any of the hitters yeah, so hey, that's uh-huh. a, that's a guy who you know maybe when he gets a little bit more healthy, uh, less banged up, you know maybe he can put it all together. You know, like another guy who actually had a good year, but who you can actually see taking a leap forward going in the future is a guy like Desmond Lindsay, who's been nagged by that leg injury. If he could ever just kind of get a hundred percent, I mean, he's got a pretty high ceiling, don't you think? Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean this is like when we were talking about how when we mentioned how kind of just like a, a player's physical attributes will go into you know projecting whether or not they will become a, you know a better prospect or not. And Lindsay is a guy that you know if you if you line up the Cyclones in a line, Lindsay will stand out as just the guy that has you know just larger muscles than most. You know, his <laughs> his legs are huge. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he, he 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 looked good in a in a pair of jeans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I just kind of wanted to talk about that and kind of just just for the audience and just to kind of put some context into what we're trying to do when we evaluate these guys and how, you know, maybe sometimes the stats don't line up with the projection yet, but, you know, using Ahmed Rosario as the test case here, you know, sometimes it does you know, the performance does catch up to the scouting report. And so, you know, that's what we're going to be doing for, you know, the rest of the offseason. We're going to get into lists and we're going to get into all that kind of stuff. And so um just wanted to provide some context there. So that is all the time we have for this week. And uh, we'll continue talking about prospects next week in the same spot. This is Aaron York for Amazing Avenue Audio, and today we are going to talk about the big news from the Mets minor leagues that broke earlier this week, and that was that Wally Backman will not be returning as the manager for the Mets AAA affiliate in Las Vegas, Nevada, and that's big news because ever since The club signed him to manage in the minor leagues. He's risen through the ranks. He has long been considered the manager-in-waiting. 
back when it wasn't clear that Terry Collins was going to go on an amazing pennant run in 2015. And even this year, as it looks like Terry Collins might get fired if the team misses the postseason, and Collins still might get fired if the team misses the postseason, but if the Mets do want to replace him, it will not be with Wally Backman because the team has parted ways with him, citing philosophical differences on player development and things like him not batting young players at the top of the order and not batting Michael Conforto against lefties when the Mets sent him down just so he can work on hitting against lefties. But even if you just take his reputation into account and the reputation of general manager Sandy Alderson, who is his boss, it's easy to recognize the differences Backman is a former player. He was a hard-nosed guy as a second baseman for the 1986 Mets. He's known for playing the game hard and and believing in things like grit and passion, and that's just the reputation. And while Sandy Alderson is the stats nerd who used to be on, who used to run the Padres, and now is turning the Mets into a club that all they do want to do is walk and hit home runs. Those are just the extreme archetypes that those guys might fit into and obviously those two things clash and in this case they clashed in real life too because Backman is no longer with the team and this is a good thing for Mets fans like myself who were not very pleased of the idea of this fiery manager getting promoted because even though he didn't have experience managing in the in the major leagues, just getting promoted because fans, other fans, there's a certain segment of fans who are nostalgic for the 1986 team. Fans who grew up with that team obviously fond, fondly remember it, and they love Wally Backman, and they love anyone associated with it, and. They think Backman would be a great manager no matter what, and some people love fiery managers, and I'm not one of those guys. I think it's all for show, especially over the course of a 162-game season. Who's to say that that kind of attitude won't wear some guys out, especially in baseball when you're just around the team almost 24 hours a day. Uh, these players are obviously with each other more than with their own families, I think it's better to have a steady hand, but that's just based on the personality that Backman has shown in his time in the minors, and even before he was with the Mets organization, he was the guy that some fans like that throws a temper tantrum and gets everyone all fired up and is a rah-rah guy, but the Mets did not go in that direction, and part of the reason why he Backman was such a popular candidate to take over Collins' job was because he's a big media favorite. And this is something I was talking to one of my friends at work about, is that the media, they pretend to be unbiased towards the team, but they still are biased towards certain things that will make a good story. Even Buster Only of ESPN, he talks about this 
He'll mention all the time when fans ask him who he roots for, he says he doesn't root for teams, he roots for stories. But in my opinion, that's the same thing. You're still rooting for something. So if the Cubs winning the World Series is a great story this year, then Buster only is going to root for that. And if them falling short for the umpteenth time is a great story, then he's going to root for that. But he's still rooting for something, and that plays into the Wally Backman narrative because he's a talker and... What better guy to write a story about than someone who's going to give you a good quote and someone who's going to make himself the story over the course of a slow summer? He could kind of just become a story out of nowhere instead of having to write about a boring 3-2 game when you're 10 games out of first place or something. He's someone who can create controversy if you prod him the right way. So part of the reason that this guy was so hyped up was because was the media, some of the media at least, I don't want to lump them all together, but there were certain writers who knew that this guy would be better to work with than, although Terry Collins, I don't think he's a bad guy. He's not a bad quote machine, but Wally Backman would be great. He'd be the Rex Ryan of the Mets without the pedigree of being a great defensive coordinator I'll give Rex Ryan credit that he earned his way into his job not by being a great talker he was a great defensive coordinator for a a pretty long period of time or at least a great defensive coach for a long period of time but he's that type of guy that can give the media what it wants so by the Mets letting go of Wally Backman they kind of rebelled against the writers and a certain segment of the fan base that wanted him there just because of his personality and because of his history with the team. But I don't know if that makes Terry Collins job any more safer. If you're one of the many fans who wants Collins out because of the admittedly poor decisions he's made during this year, you should probably root for the team to miss the postseason. Although I'm sure Most of you would rather have the Mets make the postseason and have Collins than miss it and have him fired, but you never know. So, But that's how the only way Collins is going to lose his job is if he misses the postseason or he'd have to monumentally screw up in the postseason, like perhaps forgetting to challenge a play at the plate again. I don't think he's going to forget to do that again due to the huge storm that it caused, so... Hopefully it won't come to that, but no matter what bad decisions Collins has made this year, and I'll say that I think some of them were just because he doesn't have that many good pitchers in the bullpen. I know they've thrown too many innings, but there just aren't that many guys to turn to, but even so, he's made some bad decisions. Everyone can see that, but he's still not going to lose his job if the Mets make the postseason, and... At least if he does lose his job, it won't be Wally Backman taking his place anymore. So I've gone on way too long about that, but this is Aaron York for Amazing Avenue Audio. Last week I told you I was cautiously, foolishly optimistic about this team. This week, 
I'm the same, but it's probably a little less foolish, which is maybe the most ridiculous thing I've said in a very long time. Because it's, once again, Wednesday afternoon. The Mets are currently tied with the Nationals. Uh, no score. They are a game up on the Cards, who lost this afternoon. They're half a game back on the Giants, who are currently losing. So all of this entire race will be completely different by the time you hear this podcast. But the Mets are gonna freaking sneak into this wild card race, and it's going to be absurd. And I don't know that they deserve it or that they've earned it, but I really do believe that it's gonna happen. They are being held together by tape and string at this point. Rafael Montero should not be in the majors. Rafael Montero should maybe not even be on the 40-man roster. Should definitely probably not be on the 40-man roster. And they're still doing it. Robert Gazelman looks great. Seth Lugo looks like a Cy Young candidate. TJ Rivera is hitting walk-off home runs in the top of the 10th inning. Not walk-offs. There we go. Just regular old go-ahead home runs in the top of the 10th inning. And it's fun. And I think this year has been incredibly stressful as a Mets fan. And it's going to get even worse as we go down the stretch, but... I've decided I'm just going to have fun with it because I can't control it and they're going to sneak in and they're going to trick everyone into believing that they belong and I'm going to go for it and I think we're going to be here in October and I'm still going to be doing these podcasts because I think the Mets are going there. folks show 202 is in the books thank you so much for listening we really appreciate it please continue to email the show podcast at amazonavenueaudio.com we love to answer questions of course you can go to amazonavenue.com and check out all your new york mets needs we have game threads game recaps news analysis looks at the minor leagues uh, some funny stuff. We have all sorts of stuff there. Please check it out. We really appreciate it. You can also find Amazing Avenue on all relevant social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. You can follow all the contributors for this week's show on Twitter. Again, Stuart Johnson is at Stujo11. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Lucas is at Elvlahos343. Steve Saipa is at Steve Saipa. Greg Karam is at Greg Karam. Steve Schreiber is at underscore Mr. Met. Aaron York is at APY5000. And Kate Feldman is at Kate E. Feldman. Rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Download it directly from blogtalkradio.com or the Stitcher app or wherever you hear podcasts. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with details on our live show. I know I promised that this week, but I mean it for next week, as well as all the latest goings-on with the New York Metropolitans. And so, until next time, let's go Mets. Mets.